In a far-off land, a radio show will commence. It's called Your Pet Matters, and tuning in would just make sense. Every Saturday at 10 a.m., relax and unwind. And listen to Dr. T, who has pet advice designed for you and for you alone. Free advice just for helping to keep your furry friend happy and healthy. Tune in to Your Pet Matters, a show underwritten by Progressive Veterinary Care with quality you can't deny. Only on 1077 The Bronx. Hey guys, Dr. T here, and on today's show, I'd like to talk about pain. Couple things, couple things. When I started practicing vet med, which is not too long ago in the distant future, but older than many of you viewers here, um, not too long ago in the distant future, oh my, oh my, oh my. I am thinking of multiverse, uh, all this different timelines. There's so many things going on. I've been, you can tell I've been binge watching Netflix and watching the latest episode of the Marvel movie. I apologize for that. But many moons ago when I started practicing, there was a board certified surgeon, which is a specialist, a veterinary specialist in surgery who did not administer pain meds for the orthopedic surgeries that he sent home. And his answer was, keeps them quiet, keeps them still. So you can see that even before his time, this, this dude was a little backwards, I guess. Yes, he was. Um, even before his time, when I was in vet school, long before that, pain management was huge. And to not do pain management in pets for many things, we'll get into that on this video, is just not best medicine. So, yes, animals feel pain. Yes, I'm going to tell you how to look for signs of pain in pets. And for those of you who probably, and I've seen this more than once out of practice, you know, I, I, have to, I have to promote two things, feline health and feline male neuter pain management. And I'll get to that later. But yes, animals do feel pain. So let's define pain. The internal association for the study of pain defines pain as an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience associated with the actual or potential tissue damage. It's a noxious stimulus, whether it's crushing, cutting, or burning, that activates the receptors in our tissues to send signals to the brain where they generate multiple responses. So the bottom line is animals have the same pain sensors in the same tissues as we do. And those sensors then generate neurological signals that then travel up to the brain. And then the brain goes, oh, we're in pain over here in the hand, let's say. I'm going to send a signal so that hand can then do a muscular or movement response to pull away from the pain. So yes, animals have exactly the same type of sensory receptors and motor neuron responses that lead to stimulus response to physical action. Okay. And what I will say, and this is my personal opinion, is that we in the human world, myself included, are the wussies of the animal kingdom. When, 
when something ow, when something does us to us, we pull a muscle, we do something, we have a little bit of joint pain. Everyone knows about it. When your pets are doing that, you may not notice. They may be subtle signs. They may work through it. And so more often than not, when I'm in a situation where I know that the pet is in pain and we have those clients and I still get that every time, and you may be one of them, and I'm not going to fault you for that, but a general comment that I see in practice is, oh, they don't. They're not in pain. They don't seem like they're in pain. And, and it's, 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 it's something that I really need you to be open about that, yes, they feel pain. So if you have an eight-year-old dog or cat, I can guarantee you there are arthritic changes going on in them, and I can guarantee you that arthritis is painful. Arthritis isn't painful in us. It's painful in them. So I need you to understand that whole concept. What we do as veterinarians is we're trained to, A, assume pain or look for signs. And I'm going to share those signs with you. So is there signs like constant licking, cleaning? Are they slow to move? Do they take extra long time in the morning to stretch and get ready? Decreased appetite is a common sign of pain. Restlessness, I hear about this all the time, especially older dogs at night have difficulty settling. Now, it could be anxiety, it could be behavioral as well, but a lot of times in a senior pet, it could be painful as well. And then here's the kicker in cats. A lot of people don't realize that their cat is in pain. And so I, I talk about things like, um, is there a hesitancy to jump? Do they have this sort of, okay, okay, okay. Something that they were able to jump on easily as a youngster, there's a hesitancy and the, before they go, a lot of times do they make it or not? You know, I, I find that, that, that sort of thing happening. If they're in a lot of pain, you will hear vocalization. So I had a dog hit by a car standing on my exam table. I'm palpating the leg in question. He is not showing any sort of quick pain response. I take a radiograph, x-ray as we call them, of the back leg and his femur was broken. So just to give you an idea of where we stand, I really don't know a human that would be able to tolerate things like that. So other signs, are they limping? Are they stiff? Are their muscles tense when we see pets with back pain or pancreatitis, which can be very painful? They are tense. They're arched. They're showing you signs like that. Some dogs will become aggressive if they're in pain, and it's not uncommon. Oh, yeah, you know, my kid was touching him or we were petting him, and he went and he tried to bite me. That could definitely be a sign of pain. Cats, are they hiding? When cats hide, they're sick. Guaranteed. Are they just not a happy version of themselves? Do they appear lethargic? Do they neglect their grooming? And a lot of times you'll see in facial expressions, pets smile. You can see that. Are they not smiling? Are they just in almost a fearful mode? Those are the types of things you can see with pain. And a lot of times I will do to convince some pet parents that their pet's in pain, I'll say, hey, let's do a trial course of pain management. 
I always want to make sure that metabolically they're doing well, that they have recent blood work or good blood work before that, because a lot of the pain managements we use are aspirins, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs as we call them, and they are metabolized by the liver, and you have to make sure the liver and kidney function are good prior to doing this, and then we want to maintain that. So this is another push for the importance of doing blood work on a regular basis. And the other thing that I, I will personally have, and, and maybe you do too, is there's different type of aspirins for us out there. There's, there's Advil or ibuprofen. There's Tylenol. Um, the first, Advil, will upset my stomach. It works great on muscle pain, but it will upset my stomach. Tylenol, much less so. And so it's this, this time I need to interject. See these? These are typical NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, or aspirins that we take. Advil, ibuprofen. Aleve, same family, Tylenol, acetaminophen. Do not give these to your pets. I repeat, do not give these to your pets. They are toxic. In the pet world, the aspirins, so to speak, the NSAIDs, yes, they can have an upset stomach, so I usually say give it with the meal and see how things go. But getting back to my trial of pain management, when I put some dogs that I know are painful and I convince that client to do a trial pain management five, seven days-ish, the first thing I say is, are they a new dog on that? Do they act like a younger version of themselves? Are they happier? Are they more active? Everything. And you see that. You see that. And it's not uncommon in if I do a dental on a senior pet and we have an extraction, I send them home with pain management, that they'll, they'll comment later that their joints, they, they were, after the pain management stopped, they weren't moving as well. Um, I recently had a mass removal dog that I sent home with pain, pain management, and after the pain management stopped, about a week or two later, mom calls me up and says, you know, my dog's, my dog's in pain. That's a win-win for me because now she's recognizing the signs of pain. And then we talked about the use of, of NSAIDs, aspirin, for long-term pain management. And with that, we'll take a short break and come back after these messages. You're listening to Your Pet Matters right here on 1077-1077, thebronc.com. Hear ye, hear ye. Your Pet Matters is back to answer your pet queries. Come get free pet advice from our friend, Dr. T, only on 1077 The Bronx. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Your Pet Matters right here on 1077, 1077thebronc.com, and we're talking about pain. So you can really help your veterinarian by looking for the signs of pain in your pet. And the other thing is, uh, I'll just put a little plug, finish the meds. When we send home a week's worth of meds, finish those meds, please. It, it, it. It hits a core deep wound in me when people, oh, I have meds left over from last time. What do you mean you have meds left over from last time? Please finish those meds. Finish, finish those meds. Um, so how can you at home help me with decreasing pain management? Well, number one is look for the signs. Another thing that is deeply painful are disease processes. We already talked about arthritis, but dental Dental disease, dental pain, infections, incredibly painful. Anyone out there have a toothache? You will understand that. Ear infections. Ear infections can be incredibly painful. So 
The way you can decrease pain is if you notice dental pain or infection, get your regular dental cleanings done by your vet. If you notice any sort of really stinky mouths, if you see, if you see pus, that's definitely infection. Rinflame gums, you want to get your veterinarian to look at that. Ear infections, definitely want to get them dealt with. I always tell pet parents, I say, listen, put yourself in their shoes. If you had an ear infection, oh, it can wait a few days. Can it? Would you tolerate something like that? That's very painful. Plus, it's an infection. We need to deal with it. The other thing I want to talk about is that in sur- we always do pain management definitely for surgical situations, as I discussed, um, dental, um, orthopedic for sure. Uh, when Dr. Ting comes into surgery, definitely going home with pain management. Um, any sort of surgery, last, uh, you know, spays, neuters, um, laceration repairs, abscesses, anal gland abscesses, anal glands, a lot of things can cause pain and a lot of opportunities for pain management. So I already talked about dealing with pain management with this, our standards, the aspirin. So aspirins do exist for cats as well. Um, and so they can have pain management. We can use morphine-derived drugs like buprenorphine, buprenex we call it. Um, there are other drugs for later disease processes of arthritis, um, gabapentin, um, amantadine. Those are commonly used for pain management in, in arthritic patients. Um, going... The other way is for arthritis, their joint supplements actually help reduce inflammation and that does help reduce pain. And then going even further from a a pseudo-alternative standpoint is we use a lot of laser therapy. Laser therapy, by definition, decreases pain and inflammation in pets. And there are new avenues. There's a Electromagnetic field loops, um, the company's called a CC, that works really well. So laser works by decreasing pain and inflammation and helping stimulate um, your energy-producing cells, the mitochondria, to produce energy in the form of ATP. ATP stimulates as EMF loops, electromagnetic field loops, stimulate nitric oxide, nitrous, nitric oxide in the blood supply, which has a different approach towards pain. So a lot of times we will actually do both. Now, both these modalities are not something that it's a one and done deal. I will do it once for like an ear infection or an abscess or anything. But if you're talking about arthritis, you have to have multiple sessions. And like acupuncture, you want to do several sessions before you decide is it something that's working and can we wean down so a lot of vets out there have laser therapy there's a lot of vets who do acupuncture Um, a lot of vets have these emf loops and so they can provide you with means of doing some pain management and i think that's that's the way i'll leave it is a pets feel pain just like me and you b look out for the signs of pain And if they're in pain and your vet prescribes pain management, follow the course of directions. Something may be permanent. Um, In cases like back pain and so forth, a lot of pain management might be needed permanently. In cases of long-term arthritis, pain management may be needed permanently. Um, So those are things you want to definitely discuss with your veterinarian. And maintain their teeth. Maintain ear cleaning. Keep their toenails trimmed for arthritis. 
get them moving, keep the joint um, limber and the muscle working, use your joint supplements. If you have dogs that have potential back or disc disease, I've had a couple cases this week, keep them lean, keep them mean, look for the subtle signs of pain and it'll really help your pet and your veterinarian can get in there and help you maintain a happy, pain-free, healthier life. And remember, everyone, love your pet like they live, love you, pain-free and unconditionally, even though we're a pain in their butts. Take care. And with that, we'll take another short break, and we'll return right here, and we'll talk about heat stroke on Your Pet Matters. I'm Michael Dr. T. Tequila. Every weekend, you'll find a project to get involved with. And sometimes, it'll include your scaly or furry partner in crime. From Your Pet Matters with Dr. T, it's time for Producer's Pet Project. Your go-to for pet news, recall alerts, adoption services, and overall helpful tips and tricks to keep your best friend happy and healthy. Producer's Pet Project is underwritten in part by Progressive Veterinary Care. Hello everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Your Pet Matters. I'm your producer, Wade Buchanan, and today, I wanted to shift my direction towards our scaredy little friends. I know that sometimes we can all get caught up in cats and dogs being the main household pet, but now, a growing amount of people are starting to find use for our scaredy friends in their household. According to an article found on everythingreptiles.com, titled 23 Fun Facts and Interesting Snake Statistics, it states that there is over 500,000 households that own a pet snake in the United States. So, by sticking with this article, I would like to share with you 23 interesting snake facts and statistics. So number one is that there are 3,686 species of snakes. Snakes are a global and diverse animal species. It is difficult to know exactly how many species of snake there have been in the wild. To date, 3,686 species of snakes have been discovered and recorded. Snakes have been found on every continent apart from Antarctica. The Himalayan pit viper has been found to live at an elevation of 16,000 feet above sea level. Interesting, not all species of snake. Sea snakes are a member of the Elliptidae family which also includes cobras and adders. There are 60 species of sea snake that are divided into two main groups. One is true sea snakes are a part of the subfamily Hydrophiline. They are fully aquatic and eat fish and invertebrates. And two are sea crates, which is also a part of the subfamily Lodicodion. These species are semi-aquatic and venomous. The second fact is that snakes are ectotherms. Snakes cannot create their own body heat. They are cold-blooded and rely on outside temperature to get energy. External sources, for example the sun, help them heat up and gain energy to function. Once they are warmed up, snakes have the energy to go about their day or night. If they are too cold, they will struggle to digest food, move around, or escape predators. To prevent themselves from getting too cold, Snakes bask in the sun, rest under a heat lamp, or find a warm spot to curl up in. In the evening, it is not uncommon to see snakes out on the roads or sidewalks soaping up the heat from the asphalt. They are carnivorous. Unlike other reptiles, such as lizards, snakes are carnivorous, which means they only eat meat. 
Some of these things that they eat are lizards, frogs, insects, mammals, or sometimes even other snakes. Smaller snakes such as the ring-necked snake eat earthworms, slugs, and amphibians. Larger snakes such as the green anaconda can eat mammals as large as deers or pigs. In captivity, most owners feed their snakes mice, rats, or rabbits, depending on the size. The size of the snake restricts the size of the prey that's eaten. Number four is snakes can slither 12.5 miles per hour. Many people wonder how fast snakes are. Despite not having any limbs, snakes can move surprisingly fast. The fastest snake in North America is the coach whip species that can slither at speeds up to 3.6 miles per hour. The fastest snake in the world is the black mamba, which has been recorded at 12.5 miles per hour. Black mambas are able to lift up a third of their body off the ground while slithering. Snakes use their belly scales and lateral muscles to pull themselves along the ground. The fifth fact is that 1.1 million people own pet snakes. 4% of pet owners have snakes in the United States. In a 2012 a survey of houses in the U.S. found that over 1,150,000 people kept snakes. That number is expected to grow rapidly as keeping reptiles is very popular with millennials. The most popular pet snake is the ball python. Ball pythons are known for their docile nature, ease of care, and morphs variety. Another favorite is corn snake morphs that are similar than pythons but just as friendly. Number six is that snakes hibernate. An interesting snake fact is that in the winter, many species that live in colder climates hibernate. As the temperature cools down in the fall, snakes seek out refuge and shelter known as hibernocula. Similar to how bears hibernate in caves, snakes hibernate in old animal burrows, fallen logs, or man-made structures such as garages or old warehouses. Some snakes, such as the blue racer, are known to hibernate with other species and return to the same spot each year. During hibernation, their metabolism slows and they grow into a period of dormancy where they will not eat or drink. In the spring, as the weather warms, they emerge from hibernation and resume normal activities. Number seven is that they can drink without lips. Most people are confused by how snakes drink water because they do not have lips. However, most species drink water under the same way as humans. They use their mouth to create suction that forces water into their throats. In order to keep water from spilling out, they create a seal with their mouths. Creating a seal can be tricky for a species without movable lips. Some snakes have evolved special skin folds in their lower jaw to absorb water like a sponge. This way of passive drinking takes up less energy than trying to suck up the water. Number eight is that they can survive for months without eating. Snakes are masters of waiting for food. They can limit their resting energy consumption because they are cold-blooded. This means they avoid digesting their vital stores of protein needed for survival. Some species can decrease their metabolism by up to 72%. If mammals are deprived of food, it quickly begins to damage their organs. Amazingly, some snakes can go over one year without eating. In the wild, this ability has helped snakes adapt to such a wide range of habitats and become successful predators. Pet snakes in captivity should be fed regularly. It is a common mistake to not feed them based on a routine. Number nine is snakes have teeth and fangs in the front and the rear. Anyone who has been bitten by a snake knows they have teeth to spare. Snakes' teeth are often small or curved. This allows them to get a good grip on their prey. Many snakes have fangs that are longer and sharper than their regular teeth. Fangs vary by species and are adapted for different prey. 
Snakes in the Elliptidae or Viperidae families have fangs located in the front of their mouths. Other families, such as the Columbridae and the Paridae, have fangs closer to the rear. Some species have fangs so long that they would have to fold them when not in use. Snakes hiss as a defense mechanism. The hiss of a snake is not easily confused with another sound. The most common reason for why snakes hiss is its defense mechanism. When disturbed, most snakes will try first try to slither away and find cover. If this fails, they may hiss, curve their bodies, or strike. Hissing lets their attacker know they will strike. The hog-nosed snake is characterized by its noisy hiss. Puff adders are known for their unmistakable threat display. Before striking, they will inflate their body and hiss loudly. That is all the time I have for this episode, so tune in next week where I give you more tips, tricks, and overall just fun facts to keep your furry or scaly friends happy, healthy, and safe. Till then, back to Dr. T and Your Pet Matters. I'm your producer, Wade Buchanan, and I will see you all in the next one. Stay safe, everybody. That was today's segment of Producer's Pet Project. Your one stop for all things pet news, recall alerts, adoption services, and more. Be sure to tune in next time. And for a more in-depth conversation, listen to Your Pet Matters with Dr. T every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Producer's Pet Project is underwritten in part by Progressive Veterinary Care. Only on 107.7 The Bronx. Hear ye, hear ye. Your Pet Matters is back to answer your pet queries. Come get free pet advice from our friend, Dr. T, only on 1077 The Bronx. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in to Your Pet Matters right here on 107.7 on the FM dial. And now let's talk about heat stroke. And today is brutally hot outside, like many days this summer have been. Our pool is 90 degrees Fahrenheit. 32.2 degrees Celsius for those who use the metric system. That's brutally hot. It's like walking into a bath, but it is a reflection of the heat that we are experiencing right now. Our lawn is brown. We are worried about watering it because I don't want to dry out my well. It is a pseudo dry spell here, so we're just going to take things easy. But with the heat, it got me thinking about heat stroke in pets. I had the unfortunate job during my first year as a vet on emergency on a Sunday to be called into the vet clinic where a young girl had walked her dog. This girl was five or four years of age and she had overwalked her dog and walked him in the brutal heat. And he ended up getting heat stroke and he actually passed away. As a result of this, and I'll never forget because he was a very, he wasn't a very old dog and he just had succumbed to the heat stroke issues and it was devastating because the whole family was there. Um, and it was devastating for me too. First year I was at a vet and just, they just, I'll, I'll never forget that situation. So I want you as pet parents to be able to deal with heat stroke and look for the signs and help prevent it. And if it, unfortunately, if it does happen, what can you do? So a couple things here. So let's, let's talk about general concepts here. So high body temperature, otherwise known as hyperthermia, is defined as when the body temperature increases above 
102.2 or 39 degrees Celsius, 102.2 Fahrenheit or 39 degrees Celsius. You can go to three levels that lead to heat stroke, which is the worst. So you can have heat stress, which is where you have increased thirst and panting. You are typically mentally there and you can move about and correct the situation. The second form is heat exhaustion. It's a more severe form of heat stress. You have a significant increase in thirst and panting, and you feel weak. You are mentally aware, but a little weak when you move, and worst case scenario, you may collapse. And then finally, heat stroke is the most severe form of hyperthermia. It's when the pet's temperature goes well above 41 degrees Celsius, which is about 106 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's when neurologically things are not doing well. You could literally have organ dysfunction and or failure. Um, what happens is above 106, your proteins in your body actually begin to melt and you lead to multi-organ failure. And when you start getting to that stage, which is what that dog had, the chance of full recovery goes down incredibly to like less than 30%. Um, and if you happen to survive that, you tend to have permanent organ damage. So the big difference I'd like to get across is the difference between pets and us in how we they deal with heat. So when we get hot, we have sweat glands throughout our entire body and our entire body just starts getting wet and the concept is is that the airflow will then help cool you that's why you sweat pets have sweat glands not all over the body like us they have sweat glands in their nose and in their pads and if so if you notice they will pant so majority of their heat release is done through panting you will see that their nose will start dripping a little clear fluid and their, and their paws. So sometimes if we know a pet is stressed in the exam room, we feel that their paws are all sweaty. Or if they're running a fever, we feel that their paws are actually sweaty. So that's the difference. So can you imagine that they don't have that capability? Like our surface area of our skin is huge. And so if you have a huge area to dissipate heat, then it's much easier to cool yourself as dogs and cats have that inability to have that huge surface area. So think about that, okay? And then there's also the misconception that, yes, heat stress, heat exhaustion, heat stroke can occur mostly in the summer months, but it can also occur not in the summer months, in the fall, in the spring, in vet school. It was common at the vet school I went to because the, the temperatures were pretty darn low, even in the summer where I went to vet school. And so a lot of the vet students would literally bring their pets in their cars and the pets would be fine in their cars. Well, unfortunately, one vet student had a pet with cancer and that pet actually was more susceptible to overheating. And in a situation that a young, healthy pet would have done well, this pet actually got heat exhaustion and passed away. Again, these are in, these are memories that are very strong in my, my, my mind, and it, it, it really enables me to have that drive to help educate you so that we can prevent things such as this. Okay, so let's talk about the scenarios in which heat stroke can occur. If you have very high temps and or humidity, you have 
decreased or inadequate airflow, no access to shade, no access or limited water supplies. If you're excessively exercising, pushing their the pet, pets are, that are not used to hot weather, or pets that are left in enclosed areas or cages with no airflow or air conditioning, or left in vehicles. I did a little video about staying in a in a vehicle in the hot, and then I just couldn't do it. Uh, <laughs> so the pets that are at risks are very small animals, the very young, the very old, the very sick, thick or long hair-coated pets, overweight or obese pets, large breed dogs, active or extremely active dogs in hunting situations type things, brachiocephalic dogs, those, those flat-nosed breeds, they alone struffle, suffer with airflow issues on their best of days. Um, the equivalent of cats would be like something like the Himalayan cat. Um, they are like 1.5 times more likely to suffer than other breeds of, of pets, these, these brachiocephalics. Any pet with a respiratory disease or breathing problem. Um, in the large breed dogs, it's the laryngeal paralysis dogs can't handle uh, the heat. Cardiac patients neurologic patients, and patients that start off the day dehydrated. So those are your, those are your pets at risk. And so what, what are the typical signs that you'll see? Well, if you happen to take their temperature, their temperature will be above normal. Normal temp in a pet, 99 to 102. Use those parameters. Um, they'll be restless. What they're trying to do is their heart rate will go up, trying to spread the blood to, to, to bring in the, the heated blood and cool it off through their, their the lung system. You'll see them panting excessively, maybe having difficult breathing. They may be drooling really thick saliva. Worst case scenarios, their gums can change color. They can go to dark, dark, red, purple, blue. Not good. In the more severe symptoms, vomiting, severe lethargy or collapse, dizziness, may act delirious, muscle tremors, seizures, they can go unconscious. So those are the, the phenomenon that you see. So what would your vet do in an emergency situation? So if you see those signs, definitely, you know, what you can do initially is do not put them directly in an ice bath. What you can do is just get some towels that are soaked with water, doesn't have to be super cold water. That will help and put them on them. That will help cool them off. Um, people that literally uh, spritz their feet with alcohol, so it helps, you know, the paw, paw pads, so it helps disperse the heat and evaporate and everything like that. So just lots of access to water. Keep them cool and then get them to your veterinarian. And just as an aside note, if you ever are in an emergency situation, your veterinarian would always want you to call ahead so they can get an, an estimated time of arrival so they're prepared. Um, Honestly, if you live near an emergency center, then your regular veterinarian, and this is an emergency situation, head towards the emergency center, call them. And always have your veterinarian's number and an emergency vet number on speed dial on your cell phone. So that in an emergency situation, you don't have to think, you just get them going that way. Okay? So what's going to happen when you, when, when you go to the, the vet is this is going to be an emergency situation. So they're going to bring them in. They're going to start cooling them off. They're going to be doing IV fluids to treat for the dehydration and shock and to cool. They're going to pull some blood work. They may need oxygen. 
Um, sometimes in bad cases, they might have to sedate or put anesthesia on to get the air tubes in so they can breathe. Um, a lot of times in severe cases, the stomach lining may start to slough, so they might have to put them on stomach protectants, anti-nausea meds. They'll get them on antibiotics for potential sepsis, might need pain relievers, might need cardiac meds. In really bad situations, they could have clotting issues. They might need blood transfusions. And this becomes an intensive care case, and they need to be hospitalized in intensive care. So that's how bad heat, heat exhaustion, heat stroke could be. I, I was fortunate in, in one, I attended this dog event. I was the attending veterinarian, so to speak, and I got called over because the dog was overheating. Um, it was a brachiocephalic dog. It was interesting because the couple had done tons of runs with this dog, and this dog's always been fine. Well, he was he was heat. I'm going to say heat stress because the beauty of it. So this is a 5K run. I've driven over in this 4x4, whip up to this house where the where the, the pet parents are there with their pet, and I I thank the kindness of his good Samaritan. So the actual house that was there, the owner came out and she had actually soaked towels and they put towels around the dog. Um, I had fluids there. I gave subcutaneous fluids and we managed just to bring the body temp down to a normal. And he was pretty, he was pretty chill after he was doing really well. And I got reports later that he was doing great. And so those are, those are situations where they, they knew the signs, they sought help, um, that Good Samaritan did the right thing and we were able to be there for them. So that's a great thing. So what I want you to do is I want you to think about how can we prevent this, right? Because the best scenario to any disease process or emergency situation is to help prevent it. So never leave your pet unattended or in a parked car. Keep them cool. Every time they go outside, have lots of access to water, um, you know, there, there's these, uh, I, I, I use this and I'm going to say this anecdotally, but it seems to work. There's a thing called a cool collar where you just freeze this little freezy pack, you put it in this collar and you put the collar on your pet and it, it helps them. Um, I would totally avoid running them on the warmest days. A lot of people would, would take them out in the early mornings where it's cooler. Lots of access to shade and water. A lot of people have little wading pools for their dogs. Um, you'll see this at dog events and everything, which I think is phenomenal. If you've got a hot home or garage, do not leave them in there. Um, avoid surfaces that are very hot. Um, I've done videos about how hot these, these, these tar and cement surfaces can get, asphalt and cement surfaces, 120 degrees, right? And keep them hydrated. Um, the general rule is if it's hot for you, it's hot for them. And going back to my statement about how we sweat, it is more hot for them. So keep that in mind. Um, you can give them frozen treats. You can use cooling mats, lots of water bowls. Um, one water bowl can get knocked over, so have access to more than one water bowl just in case. Like I said, the kiddie pool, sprinklers, hoses. Some dogs just love attacking the hose. Have the sprinkler going. And I'd avoid things that like muzzles, anything that's going to restrict their breathing. And that will definitely help the situation. So I hope this has helped in informing you about heat stroke, about the signs and symptoms, about what to do and what your veterinarian can do, and most importantly, how you can prevent it. So stay cool, everyone. And remember, love your pet like they love you unconditionally. Have a great day. 
Your Pet Matters with Dr. T comes to a close. Yet fret not if you missed the 10 a.m. Saturday show. Tune in Monday morning at 9 if you please. And hear free advice for all your dog and cat needs. You can find past episodes on the Your Pet Matters podcast or go to 1077thebronc.com slash yourpetmatters. Made for you and your pets, 1077 The Bronx is beyond compare. Your Pet Matters is underwritten by Progressive Veterinary Care.